Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going to Podcast. This week's guest is Lawrence Morrison, Managing Director of the Good Coffee Company Limited. Good morning, Lawrence Morrison, and welcome to the I Was Going to Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to this. Lawrence, the first question that we ask, I, I keep saying that I want to edit this one out, but the pandemic always has other ideas. And the first question that we ask all our guests is, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Well, it certainly has been an un- unusual time and a, an extended time. I never thought it would last as long as it's actually lasted. Um, it's been quite different for me because I'm I'm lucky enough to live in Stewarton or just outside Stewarton. So we're in the countryside. So it's not been as dramatic on a personal level for me because of where we live. It's been r- relatively easy. We're remote from it in a way, which is a blessing. Um, but from a business point of view, it's been pretty traumatic because we work in the offices and, and they're not even open yet. So we've had, had to have a look and I guess we'll touch on it later, what what we do and how we do it. Um, the other thing I've been doing, when I was a wee boy uh, growing up in the 60s and when I was about 14, I, it was the time of the Beatles and the groups and all the rest. I always wanted to be in a group and I always wanted to play the drums, but I never did it for whatever reason. I got caught up in in life and never did it. So when this started and it got on and on, just after Christmas, I contacted someone who'd advertised teaching people the drums. So behind me is a drum kit. So please don't ask me to play it because I've not done enough lessons. <laughs> so if this all fails, a career as a pop star may may, ha- may just happen. <laughs> so it's Ringo Morrison, is it? Somebody asked John Lennon, was Ringo the best drummer in the world? And John Lennon said, Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> so, Lawrence, it, it, just sort of moving on from the pandemic question, because we really want to find out a wee bit more about yourself. You were born and educated in Scotland, and we just wanted to probe a wee bit about that. Can you tell us more about that time? And did you enjoy your time during your education? Yeah, well, I was born in, in Rotten Row in Glasgow, which is a horrendous name for a hospital, but I was, that's where I was born. And I lived in a wee place called, or just outside a wee place called Breco in Perthshire. Uh, so my initial education was up in Creef at Morrison's Academy, and then my parents moved, so we went. I went to Stirling High School uh, for my latter education before I left. I was never academic. Um, I enjoyed sport, uh, so I was looking forward to going to school to play in rugby or football or whatever it was that we were playing. So I thoroughly enjoyed that, but I, I certainly wasn't academic. Um, <sighs> I really didn't know what to do with myself, frankly. And looking back on it, my mum and dad must have been really concerned about what I was going to do when I left school. Because in those days, the plan was to go get your hires and go to university. Well, I kind of fairly early on knew that I was never going to do that. Uh, so I had to fashion a career for myself out with. So I enjoyed my education. It was it was good fun. They were both good schools. Um, and the rugby and the football was great. But the academic side, didn't do it for me, I'm afraid. Um, and that's where I completed my education for what it was. And at that point, uh, Lawrence, did you know what you wanted to do when you left school? And did you get any career advice at school? I didn't really get career advice because I didn't really complete uh, my education. I left when I was 15. And from the age of 14, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Prior to that, I'd had all sorts of ideas about being a journalist and for some strange reason, a physiotherapist. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. 
but that was that was the plan. Um, so at 14, my mum and dad took me to Rosyth Navy Days, and in those days the Navy had quite a, a few number of ships. So I wandered around those ships with my with my dad and and went on board them and and saw where they'd been and the pictures of where they'd been in the world and met some of the sailors and chatted to them. And from that day, that that was it. That's what I wanted. I wanted that life, traveling around the world, seeing fantastic places. So that from the age of 14, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which pleased my parents. <laughs> so you joined the Navy in 1966, is that right? And can you tell us just a wee bit more about your, your, your Navy days? Because you were in the Navy for 20 years, I believe. I'm not sure the podcast long enough to, to tell you all the stories. <laughs> the ones to tell you. Um, yeah, I joined. I joined at fifteen, uh, which now looking back is a very young age. But I got the train down from Edinburgh to a place in Ipswich called HMS Ganges, where all the young boys at that stage uh, were trained and developed into the navy. The first part, the first part of that is just teaching you to march, put on your uniform, do what you're told, all that kind of stuff. And the next stage is looking at what you want to do, what branch do you want to go into. So I became a communicator which was basically um, learning Morse code, learning to type, uh, learning to do flashing signals, learning to do raising flags and all that sort of thing on, on board the ships. Go on from, from there. Uh, I spent a number of uh, years doing that um, and enjoyed it, served in all the naval bases, Portsmouth, Plymouth, Chatham, Faz Lane uh, and, and Rosyth. In Faz Lane, it was quite an interesting role because we're communicating with the nuclear submarines when they came up and all the rest of it. So it was quite quite an interesting time. But then I changed I changed branches uh, to become what's called the regulating branch, which is a kind of like a naval police. Um, although you serve on board ships and shore establishments. And during that time, um, I had experience of travelling in ships, Gurkha, Stubbington, Intrepid, Rothsay, and so a number of ships and a number of shore establishments during that time. Um, and I progressed up through the ranks to eventually end as a master at arms. But that's all the kind of practical side. On the other side, I had fantastic experiences. Our first ship went round, uh, we had to go round uh, the Cape. And the reason we had to do that was that the Suez Canal was shut at that point. And then we had to look after a thing called Bayra Patrol, which was implemented because Rhodesia was claiming independence and we were supposed to stop the oil going into a port called Baira. But the reality was they were taking it into South Africa anyway, so it was completely meaningless, but it was good fun anyway. And from that, I've been lucky enough to visit all sorts of places, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, Middle East, uh, all over Europe. Uh, never actually got to the US in, in my time in the Navy, which is one regret. But I had fantastic experiences. I remember a couple of them. We went to a place in Ethiopia. Haile uh, uh, Selassie was the person in charge at that point. And several of the navies were invited to do a, a, a sail past Haile Selassie's yacht. And it was the Russians, the Americans, the French and ourselves. So that was really a fantastic experience watching watching all that and um, watching the difference between particularly the Russians and the US. Uh, but that was that was great fun as well. Went down the Falklands with uh, HMS Intrepid, so I was involved down there. Um, came back and then 
I decided at that point, I was around 34, I had a choice to make. Now, do I, do I finish my career in the service and leave when I'm 55 or 50 or whatever with a, a reasonable sized pension? Or do I come out and do something else? Because I felt that sometimes service people are pigeonholed and people have an opinion of what they are and what they may be as employers, employees, sorry. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, but not always. So I wanted, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into that. And I wanted to try and prove to myself, I'd felt I'd proved, I've done as far as I, I'd gone as far as I could go in the service. What could I do in civilian life? How could I transfer what skills I felt I had into civilian life and make a success of that? And so that's why I, I left the service in, in uh, 1986. Down there, did you did you get involved in any of the action around about that point? Because it was quite a, a time, I do recall it, I was at college at the time and it, it was our uh, lecturer at the time kept saying, you guys are 17, 18, 19, you're frontline fodder, he kept like, calling us. <laughs> so uh, what was your experience like of that, Lawrence? Uh, it was it was a strange time because you you train all the time for for war effectively, um, but really during that period or prior to that the, the the people that were up against really were the Russians. So it kind of came out of left field this, um, and we started to sail down. I I actually never thought it would got to get to what it got to. I thought the polit because it'd been here before with with kind of skirmishes and stuff. And I didn't think it would get to an actual uh, an actual battle. Uh, and I remember we were uh, sailing down and we'd left Ascension Island where a lot of the logistics and stuff were. And we were on our way down and the captain came on the, the tannoy to tell us mm. that H. Sheffield had been sunk. And that was a real blow to everybody. That was reality sinking in at that point that this is real because we'd been with the Sheffield not, not long before the whole thing started. Uh, so that, that was when it, uh, it kind of got real. Uh, so our role, it was an assault ship. So we had the Royal Marines on board, Special Forces on board. So our job was to land them and, um, near San Carlos water. So we were in there when all the uh, kind of bombings and stuff went on. And then we became, as the, as the battle went on, we then became a prison ship. So the Argentine prisoners were... Uh, were brought back to us to to look after. I have to say, you know, listen to us all, all this, Lawrence. First of all, thanks very much for the service because uh, we we don't thank the servicemen enough, and uh, I think it's a fantastic experience you've had. I think it might have been challenging mentally and all the rest of it, but uh, when I when I think uh, that it's probably made you the person you are, and I saw that you you brand it quite well on LinkedIn. That you were made in the Royal Navy, so and uh, it's, it's a great story. But for for the audience, uh, younger audience that might listen to this, um, I I would love some sort of more recruitment of people going into the, getting some of that life skill discipline to set them up and and actually see it as a proper gateway to a lifestyle. But uh, have you got any uh, thoughts or advice to young folk? either encouraging them or, or who might be thinking about this kind of start in their career? About going into the service, do you mean, Colin? Yeah. Well, I, I can only reiterate what it did for me, and I, I'm sure it will do exactly the same for others, because I still keep in touch with some of the some of the people. It, it truly made me what I am today. Some of the quirks that I've got about timekeeping and all sorts of 
folding my clothes and uh, stuff that would drive people mad. But when I look back on it, it really did drive me on to succeed. I met, I had some great friends. We made great friendships. Um, you see some great places. And yes, I mean, now, with a, well, it's finishing now, but Afghanistan and particularly for the army, I had a different experience being in the Navy. Um, and I'm guessing the words are a bit the same. The army are true front line. Um, and, and that's why the, the one thing I would say we need more mental health support for people coming back from places like that. We've not got enough yeah. um, and, and we need we need to do that. Um, but I, it's a great career for a, for a young boy. I had no I had no education, really, um, and enjoyed school and stuff. But I got an education going through the Navy, um, a proper education as well. I learned strange things like learning to type nobody nobody needs the morse code anymore but you do need to, you know I, that's always been an advantage being able to type um so it's things like that the discipline that it puts into you the responsibility that it gives you you're responsible for other people uh, as you move up you become a leader um so you're leading you're leading men and and a, and women in a difficult environment and that's not always easy um but you have the skills to lead men. So you're in, the training that you're given is excellent. Um, it, it really is. And certainly that I found the training was excellent for me and gave me the skills that I needed to, to lead the men that I eventually leaded. And, and that has transferred into civilian life. You know, I, I've been able to, to nurture these skills that I was given and transfer them. They're very, very transferable um, into employment. And that was that um, worried me when I was 35. I, I said, you know, you either stay in and become institutionalised or you come out and try and persuade an employer that you're worth employing and you have a ton of skills that a lot of people don't have. Yeah. I think the two dimensions I've heard you say there, which is really important, is the, the leadership skills and the people skills that go along with that. I think that that is great. In fact, to be to reach master of arms, you know, no no mean achievement, uh, Lawrence. So fantastic, fantastic stuff. But um, no, I think that, and that I can see the pathway after that. So um, let Stuart continue with your story, but uh, no, you can I, see it. I, I'm I'm really curious uh, because I've came across uh, throughout my my own career, meeting people from the the forces, looking to do the transition between the armed forces and back into civilian life and they often uh, do have an apprehension and it's interesting i just wondered if we could maybe develop that conversation how you found it well the navy at that time i'm not sure about now because i'm too far removed from it but the navy at that time had very good programs um in terms of looking at what skills you have you have learned and trying to transfer them into transferable skills into the workplace uh, in civilian life and I did a couple of these courses. And what it did is really just make you look at yourself and look at the skills and experience that you've had. Because you didn't do it before. You didn't actually write it down and, and think about it properly. But once you did that, um, it led me into thinking, right, what do I do? A master at arms is very much a people person. He's the bridge between, he or she is the bridge between the officers and the men. That's really mostly what they do. Lots of other things. But that's the key part of it. And when I looked at those skills, there's quite a lot of skills in there. 
um, in terms of communicating, in terms of um, motivating, um, in terms of discipline and all the other sorts of things that, that you do learn. And that led me into thinking, well, maybe I could be a personnel manager, some sort of personnel or admin type role. I knew nothing about it, really. I'd never been in personnel before. Um, once I'd made that decision, uh, I was lucky enough to join. It was Bells in those days. Um, it wasn't Diageo. It's got Diageo on my thing, but, but I wasn't even in when it was Diageo. Um, it's now. It's now. It was Bells at that time, and I was really lucky enough that it, it, the structure was regional, um, so they had a regional personnel manager um, who was a really good guy, and he really, really helped me uh, develop within uh, the company at, at that time. The other thing I did, and I don't know if this is a good thing and I'm not necessarily advising anybody to do it. I moved away from the Navy. I made a conscious decision that I was going to be a civilian and I was going to be as successful as I could be. I didn't want to, that was a, a comp compartmentalized the Royal Navy. That was my life when I was 15 to 35 um, and it was great, but I needed to move on now. So a lot of my pals, still remain in the Navy, still really remain in the Navy. Uh, they'd lived in around Portsmouth and around Plymouth and around Rosyth or Faz Lane. And if you've been in, it's very difficult to get away from it then. So I'd taken the conscious decision to do that, um, right, rightly or wrongly. Um, so I, I actually didn't find the transition too hard, I have to say. Um, I didn't maybe it's a mindset thing I didn't really get into the mindset of the service now that might seem a strange thing to say but I wasn't if you'd met me when I was in the service you wouldn't have said he's a serviceman other than my haircut in those days <laughs> and probably clothes I wore uh, but I, I'd always been uh, you know I, I never I never looked back on my service life wishing I'd, I was back there again other than now, at this age, I certainly do. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't find it a huge problem, Stuart. To be honest, and you know, I think you you're being modest. You actually uh, did uh, climb the the HR ranks very quickly into some uh, very senior positions uh, within the the civilian life. And so, in 1999, you co-founded Azure, a hospitality company. Can you tell us a wee bit about what the inspiration was for that? The inspiration. I used to work for. Prior to that, I worked for a company called Kelvin International, who were um, a service company to the oil, gas, and construction business on a worldwide basis. And I thoroughly enjoyed that company. It was brilliant to work in it. You're going to places like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Hong Kong airport were involved in the building of that and all, all of that. So it was fantastic. And then we got taken over. It was Gardner Merchant in those days. And we got taken over by Sodexo, who do a very similar thing uh, in the French-speaking part of the world, basically. so mainly Africa. Um, and it wasn't as good. They wanted to restrict us to, for the right reasons, I can see why the restructuring happened. You know, it's like always when you have a... a a takeover like that, then things have to change. Um, and so when that when that happened, there was four or five of us said, right, we want to leave. We want to do something else. What are we going to do with the company, Kelvin? Um, so we were sent away by the boss. Uh, I'll never forget it to Earth Castle. And the challenge was, right, what are we going to make Kelvin, which was restricting us from all those great places to Aberdeen, Holland and Norway. Um, so we're away at Earth Castle for the weekend and the 
my job was to come back to the boss and say, right, this is what we want. So we're stupid things like, uh, why don't we buy a hotel or we'll buy a helicopter company? And, and then one night in the bar, somebody said, why don't we buy the company? Why don't we buy Kelvin? So that's not a bad idea. So my job was then to go back to the boss and say, the only thing I can think of is we're going to buy Kelvin, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a good idea, but hindsight, it was never going to happen. So we said, right, we need to do something else. So four of us uh, left at that point and we worked with Ernst and Young uh, and we looked to buy a business. That was the plan initially. Um, and we did a lot of research and a lot of work on a number of companies uh, that were up for, potentially up for sale. But it always came down to the fact that generally they were owner managed and the owner managed perception of how much the company was worth did not match our funders, which at that time were 3i, quite rightly. Um, in the end, we ended up looking at a company down in Warrington that looked after sport and leisure in a small way down there. So when we looked at that and did our research, we saw that there was an opportunity in this marketplace because the big boys like uh, Sedexo and Compass, sports and leisure market were part of business and leisure, business and industry. It was a small part of a bigger part for them. So the focus wasn't truly as it should be on these on these on that uh, part of the uh, part of the business and quite often the, particularly football clubs are owned by very influential men and women uh, who have been hugely successful in their in their own uh, in their own right so having the ability to focus an owner managed business on looking at trying to win that business we believed was an advantage um by the time it all happened there was only two of us left because the other two guys had to go and you know they had kids and stuff at the time so there was pressure on them so there was two of us left at that point uh, and that's when we founded Azure we we had done a lot of work in um in looking at what the opportunities might be um I, I'll tell you the story of how it came about Ernst and Young uh the girl we were, that was looking after us there knew Charlotte Ventures David Murray's um investment arm and they had a call with a finance director who said, where are all these businesses, Scottish businesses that we can in, we can um, invest in? So uh, she obviously said, well, here's the guys. So we were sent across into Charlotte Square, plumped in front of now Sir David Murray and his finance director. And we had to present to them what we, what we thought and what our research was. And nobody will ever believe this, but coincidentally, Rangers were outsourcing their uh, business, their catering business at that time. Um, and we were told by Charlotte Ventures, right, you go and you put a business case to Rangers. Uh, and if they take you on, then we will invest in you uh, to allow you to, to grow. So I know nobody believes it, but we went through the hoops at, at Rangers, trust me, um, to, get, to get the business. That's a pun, is it not? Going through the hoops to have something for Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, obviously, we got it. Um, and then we grew it. We actually grew it quite quickly. We acquired another business in Edinburgh and we grew it into about a 15 million pound business. We looked after places like Birmingham, Stoke, Hamilton Park Racecourse, uh, Durham Cricket Club, another racecourse down south. Um, the highlight was two 
Champions League finals. We were asked to, uh, it was in Glasgow, it was uh, Zinedine Zidane's volley. I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, anyway, it was at Hamden Park. And they were looking for a Scottish company to provide the catering for a tented village at Lower uh, Lesser Hamden, which was about 5,000 people with the corporate sponsors all split up. So that was a massive challenge. And we're just a wee company and we flew over and presented to the UEFA and obviously they, they awarded us the contract, which scared us to death when they awarded it. <laughs> How the hell are we going to do this? So anyway, we managed it and um, they invited, the next year it was at um, Old Trafford and they invited us without going through a tender process to deliver that. So that was a real highlight. Uh, and the Champions League trophy was in the marquee in uh, in Manchester and I managed to get a picture of myself holding it which is the closest Dundee United supporters ever going to come to touching something like that <laughs> so it was it was good fun it, it was it was exciting you know your your football and sport in general is exciting to be in so having the hospitality which in, was everything from the sweets at the highest level to um to the pie and the bovrils and things but we we they weren't particularly good in 1999. It was okay, but it wasn't good. So there was the opportunity. And I believe that certainly Rangers, where we started, evolved as, as the best, certainly the best in Scotland. And we did the same with Birmingham and, and stuff. We spent our money in different ways. No, that, the interesting thing for me there about that was the, the fact that you personally could see how big a moments they were. You know, yeah. like going into the office of David Murray, let's say, and how big a businessman he was. Although I think he would have recognised, because he is entrepreneurial as well, I think he would have recognised where you were coming from. And then also, like you say, suddenly your whole uh, challenge to satisfy what you've committed to UEFA, that's huge, that's huge. But it's gutsy. And it's actually, there's a dimension there that we'd like young folk to, to get a grasp of that it should hold no fear. Yeah, it should be apprehension and get your adrenaline going, but but and it's exciting as the way you described it. So you saw it as exciting. Maybe some of the others around you were crapping themselves, but <laughs> but, uh, but you know what? If when you get no, that kind of <laughs> but when you got that kind of adrenaline busted, did that actually help to channel in the focus and deliver it and? You know, give us a wee bit of the feeling behind doing it and, 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 and such like. Let me give you two examples. The first example, uh, our first event at Ibrox, uh, where we'd organised everything. The, the most important, one of the most important things for us was getting the head chef, the chef that could deliver all of this. So we decided, we, we managed to persuade the chef and a couple of his guys from the Marriott Hotel, who had a good reputation at that point, to come and join us at Ibrox, because we wanted to raise the bar. I know everybody and their dog does it now with Ramsey and the rest of them all attached to them, but in those days they didn't. Um, so we got the chap there with his, with, his, um, with his team and he came across. And we were walking around the stadium on the day of the match, uh, just checking that everything was right and all the rest of it. So we walk, we're walking around and my colleague said to me, have you seen the chef, head chef? Said, no. So walking round and round, we still couldn't, we couldn't find him. And I'll never forget, David Murray used to drive round Ibrox before he parked his car. And as we were walking round, he drove round and he waved at us and I waved back. And 
I thought at that moment in time, this is our first and last, and we're waving cheery because <laughs> we've lost the HA. And that's what happened. It actually, it, it was a good lesson for me. He left uh, because he couldn't cope. He had come from a kitchen where he was in complete control and everybody was round about him, all these, all these sous chefs and all the rest of it. In Ibrox, you have, and in a lot of football clubs, you have a main kitchen and you have the hospitality areas are spread quite wide. And in Ibrox, it's actually opposite sides of the pitch. So you've got to you've got to wheel the stuff around. So he had no control over what was happening in each of those units. He had to, he had, he had to delegate it to whoever he had in that area. And it was just far too much for him. And we didn't recognise that at the time. And that was that was wrong of us, that we should have taken care of that. We should have seen that coming. But we didn't. Um, and he was okay. He was okay in the end. He left us, but he was okay in the end. And we eventually got the uh, executive head chef from the Hilton to come and join us, which has a, he had a completely different skill set from the guy that we got from the, the Marriott. He was in control and everybody was, everybody was not in awe of him, but he was a disciplinarian, a real disciplinarian. And in that environment, you need somebody to have that kind of complete control time skills. This has got to be done then. You need to be there by then. And everybody, everybody worked in that way, whether it was a wee bit more relaxed. That's no criticism of the guy because it was we gave him a too big a job. He was he wasn't ready for something like that. And he didn't have he didn't have the support round about him. And that was a that was an important lesson for me. Uh, he needed support. So um it was it was very enjoyable, uh, enjoyable time. But Lawrence, can, can I just ask with regards to when you set the, the business up, did you have a, a structure of who would be doing what within the disciplines? Uh, and if so, what was your own aspect? Having been involved in the HR side of things, uh, did you get more involved with other aspects out with? Obviously, you were you just uh, discussed that you were involved with the operational side of the, the business, but had you delegated uh, specific functions to each other? Yeah, we, we split it down the middle, the two of us, because... because uh, Chupi was involved. We inherited an, uh, the infrastructure that Rangers had at that time, um, which was again a, a, a challenge because they'd been they'd been employed by Rangers Football Club forever and a day, and all of a sudden they were being outsourced. So that psychologically for them that was that was an issue to get over, and I, I understand that completely. But from my point of view, uh, we we had four key people. Uh, that we knew we were going to bring with us, people we knew. Um, one was the front of house person that was in control of all the front of house stuff that could organise things. And the other, there was two of them actually. And what the other one was a finance person, our own finance person, which is what we needed. So once we had that at the top, that was the tight team kind of thing at the top. Um, but we also, you know, on match day, you're talking about, in those days would be about 1,500 temporary people coming along to the to the match to serve and to cook and to do all the other thing to clean up afterwards and all the other things that go on uh, there so it was a challenge I mean I got involved in everything you know from the finances to what are the growth plan because we had to put a strategy together for the growth of the business it wasn't we weren't going to sit at Rangers for the rest of our lives and, and that's not why we're invested in so um, 
the plan, the plan to okay, year one, year two, year three, and year four. So it was identifying right where are we going to go next. It was looking at the sales funnel. How how do we how do we gain sales? And mainly we gained sales on reputation. Um, we didn't go out and hard sell. Um, we brought people to the venue if it was a a race course that we were going after. We'd invite them along to the race course that we did would invite them to meet the, the person that was running the race course not our own person our, our client um, and similarly with rangers or birmingham because we, we knew by the time we, we were ready that those places were running and we could show what we could do and we had no problem in them going around talking to our people no matter who they were whether they were the waiter or the head chef or whoever they were with no problem in them speaking to them because we wanted to make sure that we embedded a cult, our culture within the team, which was about delivering a service, looking after our customers, looking after our people properly, treating them properly, treating them fairly. Um, and, and the people we recruited were like that as well, the senior team that I just spoke about. Um, because we wanted to develop our our own team, because uh, the team within Rangers at first and the other places. Because as we grew, you know, you recruit someone. At, well, you know yourself. You recruit someone for a particular job. The business starts to grow. It gets more complex, and that person doesn't have the skills for that new complex. So that's a real difficult challenge. Then you've got somebody there who's not capable of actually growing with you. So what do you do with that person, you know, and how do you, how do you treat that person? I don't know if that answers the question. No, it did. It does indeed. Very interesting to find out that you had 1,500 people on a match day. That's a huge uh, number of people to be able to manage. And you then, uh, you, you sold the business uh, once you'd taken up to £15 billion. Can you tell us a wee bit about the, the sale of the, the, the business? It's a, I was thinking about this question, actually, and it is a lesson for somebody starting a business and looking for investment. Um, generally, or we won't generalise because I don't know. We were totally focused on the business, getting the business and growing the business. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. We knew how we could grow it. We were confident in all of that. And we sold ourselves short in negotiations with our investor. We didn't recognise the value that we were actually bringing here, which would have allowed us to negotiate a better share structure than we did. So that was a, a hard lesson that we learned in the end. Um, but we'd grown it, grown it to that size and uh, a bigger organisation came along, a company called Group Earlier. So they, they're probably about the third biggest in the world. They came along and wanted to buy the company and negotiations were happening. Um, we didn't have a big enough share in the business to say, no, we don't want to do that. Um, so the decision was, was taken out of our hands. Um, the group earlier wanted us to join them and be part of obviously some sort of exit strategy or something. But they, we didn't want to do that. Uh, I certainly didn't want to do it because we'd set, when you set out to grow your own business, hugely difficult to go back and do something else once you've grow, started your own business and done something. So we didn't want to go back into that kind of corporate world again. So it was a hard lesson and it took about, I would guess about a year to get over it. Yeah. Um, it was a it was a blow when someone's pulled, the rug's pulled from under your feet and you think, well, we spent three, four years doing all that and it's, it's all gone. 
hindsight, I totally get why they sold it. You know, looking at it dispassionately, it was a corporate decision that they took, which was, you know, the right decision. And thankfully, it was all taken before all the nonsense happened for Rangers. As a lesson, uh, Lawrence, just to sort of finish on that, do you think, in hindsight, having more understanding of negotiation of business shareholdings and potentially some law, would you think that would have assisted you within the structure in the early days of Azure? Without a doubt. We didn't have we didn't have an advisor with us. We, we just went in there. Ernst & Young had looked after us, and this is no criticism of Ernst They'd looked after us for a year pro bono, so it must it cost them a fortune. Um, so it's kind of up to you guys now. So uh, in hindsight, we should have had legal advice uh, d- definitely, we needed help on that on that side um, because we were woefully missing that uh, that skill. Just moving on again, Lawrence, if we can. In twenty seventeen, you moved into the Good Coffee Company. Can you tell me a wee bit more about the inspiration for developing this opportunity? Well, after after the uh, sale of Rangers, uh, a colleague and I, the same colleague that started the uh, Azure business with, were looking at what are we going to do next. And um, we wandered around Glasgow looking at people coming in and out of offices with Starbucks, Nero's and all the rest of it and thought, why can't we put, why can't we put something in there that's, what do you think one is better than the other, but as good as as that in, in the building itself? So that was a kind of start of, of that. Um, and a, a unit was designed that you didn't need to knock a hole in a wall or anything. It just it was a unit that would stand there, manned by a barista, and serve you a really great coffee in the, a sandwich or something. Um, so that was started then. But then the crash happened um, in 2007, 2008, something like that. And it couldn't sustain both of us. So that's why I went along to Steelcase and, and spent some time there, um, some considerable time there. Um, and then I wanted to come back to Scotland after the, um, the Steelcase Solutions business was, was sold. Um, and I, I bought five of the units because the, the partner that I'd started with wanted to go back to Ireland and, and build a house. And so I took on those units with a view to growing them. Um, and it was ticking along okay. And I'd begun to put a business plan together. How are we going to grow this? What, what do we need? Who are our targets? All the, all the sort of stuff that you need to do. Um, and then COVID hit. And during that time, I looked at myself and some of the things that were happening around about me and, and going into Stewarton and seeing queues outside the local butcher shop, local baker shop, which never happened before, you know. And and just the way people went out their way to help each other. Um, it's, it's a bit trite, I suppose, but it, there, I, I noticed a change in people and how they how their attitudes were changing. And so I looked at myself and what are we doing? Why are we doing this? So Simon Sinek's got a fantastic TED talk called Why. Um, and and I looked at myself, why why am I doing this? What For what purpose? Um, so that's why it started. And the name came out. I was working with East Ayrshire Council. We're, were great in support. Me and I worked with a couple of great people as well. And we came up with the concept of the good coffee company. And good not just being good coffee, good in, good in as much as you can possibly do in terms of the, the product and all the rest of it. But I wanted to put something back into the community. How, how can I do that? Okay, I can have a box at the end of the counter or something, and but that's not enough. Um, and so 
we looked at I looked around for what 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 fits with us, and then it was um, social bike came came up um, because they have uh, cafes they have they've got shops few of them, and they have a central production unit in Livingston that I actually didn't know about until we contacted them, so that kind of f- squared the circle for me. You know they made the product, uh, they delivered the product to us, they ran cafes. And they're a charity and they help the homeless on a local basis. So I can do that. So if you're coming to the Good Coffee Company in one of our units in Guildhall when it opens, I can tell you that some of the money that you're spending there and money that we donate to them on for every contract that we win, then that's going to help local people in Glasgow or Edinburgh or wherever the, wherever the, um, wherever the unit is. And it's it's not just about that. It's about the people. We don't we pay the we pay the real living wage. We uh, look after our staff as best we possibly can. The new units that are getting made will be made by the Glasgow Recycling Company, so they'll make our units for us. They'll be completely recyclable. <coughs> excuse me, recyclable. Um, so that that's what we're trying to be. We're trying to be this sort of company that you really want to work with. And we really want to work with you. And the other driver for it was work cafes. I, you know, people coming back into work now, are, they're going to be different. They're going to see an office that's not the same as the one that they left. You're going to have arrows everywhere. You're going to have glass screens everywhere. You're going to have to use that lift and not that lift. So it's a, it'll be a strange place. And people's well-being and mental health have been challenged during this period. So you need companies need to have a space where people can go, where people can go communicate, excuse me, communicate, collaborate, and all the other sorts of things, but also a quiet space where people can just sit and contemplate on work if they want to. Um, and I believe that th- that side of it, that comes from a steel case days. That's where all that experience comes from. And it makes a big, big difference. In a, and the other thing that people are going to be concerned about is finances. You know, have we got a job? Is my job safe? There's a whole heap of things that are just piling up that companies need to be aware of. And, and in our small way, we can play a part in that. We can help, you know, good food, good quality food um, helps people, helps productivity, nutrition and all the other sorts of things that are important uh, to people at, at work. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Really uh, admire what you're doing there. Uh, just sort of uh, touching on some of the subject matters that you were saying, there's hopefully seen some green shoots, if you like, with regards to the vaccine norma, if you want to call it that, getting back into our life. And Colin and I have been discussing the the, 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 the fact of COVID now appeasing slightly and will be coming out through furlough. And we do wonder just what effect this will have on businesses, as you've just touched upon, that people will be more aware in a number of different factors, whether it's mentally uh, scarred from what's occurred. Uh, but also there will be great opportunities that will arise from this. And in conjunction with COVID, uh, we've also got the opportunities that will arise through the new trade deals of of Brexit. I just wondered what your thoughts were with regards to those two elements. Well, I think I think you're right. There, are, there will be when, when things like this happen, when catastrophes like this happen, 
there tends to be all sorts of inspiration and all sorts of innovation come out of things like this that you never expect. And and I think particularly Scotland's in a great place for that. We're great innovators. We're great when our backs are against the wall. We, we, we really tend to pull through and we tend to pull through with each other. We've got great technology here in, in Scotland. Uh, we've got great innovation, as I said. We've got fantastic products that we can sell, whether that from whiskey to to food, to all the other sorts of different food that, that, that we pr produce here. But sometimes we, uh, sometimes as Scots, we're kind of frightened. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that's the right word, to push ourselves forward and, and to really get ourselves out there that, OK, Brexit's done. You know, we can't do anything about Brexit. Get on with it. You know, it's we've got to get out there and, and, and show the world what we can do. We're a great country. We've got great tourist spots. We've got our hospitality is fantastic. There are bits and pieces that aren't, but in general it is. And there's a desire for everybody to do well, and and we've just got to harness all that and and you know drive it out to the rest of the world, get them to realise Ireland's brilliant at this. You know, I, I work with an Irish pal, and and they are brilliant at selling themselves. But under underneath, they're no different to us. The products that they have are as we've got as good products as these guys have. They're just better at doing it. But the shyness and modesty is uh, something that's a wee bit inherent in us all. But I think the yeah. what I what I hear and I see from what you're saying there, Lawrence, is that you you overcame that to to achieve what you've done. And uh, but there's also a, a nice thing about keeping some of that shyness and modesty, not to be too big heed it right but also some people in in scotland who have never been anywhere else will always look at successful people as being big heed it and privileged right? but it's not you know some people work hard to get that and deserve it and uh, we should celebrate that success so some of that thinking that we need to embed and open up in the young ones in scotland to to either go over their shyness be a bit more confident but at the same time, also, it's not about overshowing off. It's about really putting yourself, uh, put your talent to use and let people see it and celebrate it when it works. And that's okay to celebrate it when it works, you know, to, you know, really speak about it, you know, so. No, I, I, the other thing I think as well, that we need we need to get, we need to be aware it's okay to fail. You, you know, as yeah. long as you've tried, you know, you, it's like this company I've got now. I don't know what's going to happen because we're in the offices now what i do know is i can't do any more some things are out with my control nicola's in charge of when the offices come back not me so there are things i can't control if that impacts the business and it doesn't work out i know i've done my best i can't do any more and and the americans are okay at failure you know it, it doesn't matter if you failed at least you've tried and we've we've we've, we've got to get over that and i think a lot of people are frightened to take that step, and I get why they're frightened. But if you take it and it works, it's great. If it take it, you've done your best. If it doesn't work, try the next thing. At least you've done Aye. it. You'll learn something. No. but it's just something very specific in what you're saying there, Lawrence. Um, I can I can see from your company's point of view. I, I read a bit about how your company uh, either can come in and run hospitality uh, operations for a company or come in and set your, your stalls up and also have like adjacent units 
But I think the adjacent unit is uh, is something to explore even more. I mean, if you've, you've been down in London, you know how busy and how competitive it is, the grab and go, a coffee and a bite to eat. But it's going to be even more of that now because people are not going to, even if they do go back to the offices, there's a lot more hot desking. And I think companies have realised they don't need as many premises or as many seats and won't be allowed to have as many seats uh, unless they've got the right ventilation standards or whatever. But your companies, uh, if you set them up more as a, an adjacent, just outside their premises or even in the foyer, you can see there's an opportunity there. So, uh, I mean, I, I listen to my young ones now. I've got, I've got kids who are out in the working age now. And they yeah. used to work in an office. But they, they still do, but they only intermittently, maybe once or twice a week, go back to the office yeah. and then the rest of the time work from home. But when they go into the office, it's actually they enjoy being able to see some colleagues and they might actually go and have a coffee together because that's the really the way they do the ice break. They might pick that up in the morning of a chat before they actually get into the office. Then when they're in their office, they're not just in a cubicle, they're isolated even yeah. in the office. So so there's a model there, though, for you. I think there's something, there's an opportunity, but it's just about, you know, getting that space and being first and being early to get back into it. It is, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm watching, I'm still involved in a lot of webinars about how how work's going to change. Um, yeah. And I think the, the example that you've given there, Colin, is exactly how it's going to work. People will come into the office mm -hmm. for a few, those that can. Um, but I think, Having said that, I think that's a huge challenge for companies too, because what they've got to remember is they're responsible for their employees' health and safety in the home if they're working from home. So the ventilation, yeah. seating, the desk, the ergonomics, they're responsible yeah. for that, which is okay for the big companies because they're they're doing it already. They're, they've got a package they can buy off the shelf as long as the employee's got the room. But there's a lot of people are, yeah. you know, people in particular are in shared flats, you know, that where they haven't got the space to, to work from home, really. So there's yeah. going to be uh, a blended mix of, of what happens in the future. But you're right, getting out onto the high street might might be something that we have a look at. As kind of fraught with, you know, rents and all that sort of stuff, the cost of setting up something like that is quite expensive, as you, as you know, Colin. But some of those big office blocks that have got a big uh, reception or foyer area, we could set that up even just to kind of barista style a small unit, but at least it's a start, you know, and you can find yeah. it and it's there, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. The challenge has been um, trying to get trying to get to the right decision maker. Get If I can get to the C-suites, they get it. They completely understand. Um, yeah. But going through whoever it is at a lower level, the facilities manager or whoever it is, it's just a pain in the neck to them. And so right. it's a, that's that's uh, that's the challenge, and that's yeah. why you know, and and the the PR and the LinkedIn and all that that's happening just now is coffee. Of course, coffee is a part of it, but it's only a part. It's only a part. Yeah. But a hell of a lot more for the company. So that's why it's kind of focused in that way, trying to raise it above. Of course, the coffee is good. It is good for the sandwiches. That's just a given. A few months ago, we read a report from the Hunter Foundation, and they uh, were looking at ways to best increase the economy whilst tackling poverty. And we ask all our guests, is there anything that they would like to add to that debate? I, 
I don't, th- I don't really know what I can add other than, other than it's a great idea and it just needs people to realise it's a great idea. It needs government to understand it. It needs uh, the corporate world to understand it and it needs the charities to understand it and bring it somehow bringing those three parts together uh, with, with a focus on, in a small way, it's like what we're doing. You know, we started this company, we're giving something back to the homeless. But in the greater scheme of things, it's only a wee bit. But if half a dozen did that, then it starts to grow, then it starts to have legs. And it's not, the. I mean, I see a real problem of poverty in Scotland. It, it kills me when I go in and see, I go into, you know, I, I walk from Glasgow to Queen Street and I pass a number of people sitting on the pavement. Yes, a lot of them are into drugs and all that, but some of them are service people. And even if they're into drugs, you need to get them off drugs somehow. Um, it just, it's terrible. Um, I mean, we need to do something. We need to be a nation that does something about it and doesn't just talk about it all the time. Um, so if the Hunter Foundation can put their weight behind something like that, and it has to be has to be driven from the top, government have to be involved in this. Otherwise, it just won't, it won't happen. Just on that, on that charitable side there as well, you've, you've got your fundraising uh, activities we were obviously, we've had pets in the family all throughout our life. Uh, what's your uh, take on that, the small animal hospital? So how do you get involved in that? How did you find out about that? Is that in the link? <laughs> you wrote You wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to look at LinkedIn again. <laughs> were you able to read it while you were climbing? Oh, no. Kilimanjaro was one of them, right? <laughs> Well, but uh, you obviously you've got sympathies with small animal uh, and then cruelty to animals. I assume that, that's what, what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, I love dogs. I'm a dog person, and um, unfortunately, my first marriage broke down. And somebody, somebody said to me, "Good way to be a moment is to get a wee dog, nice wee spaniel or something, and and they'll take it for a walk in the park and they'll talk to you." Well, I did. It was a cocker spaniel. <laughs> He would bite anything in sight, so <laughs> that never worked. But then I met my wife, and and uh, what happened was he, his back legs went. He was only about ten, uh, and he was a he was a real character. And um, I took him to the animal hospital, small animal hospital in Glasgow, and they were fantastic with me. You know, we weren't at the stage where we've a super vet that can put the put the bionic legs on at that point. Um, but they were wonderful. They really were wonderful. And they just moved into their new their new building. And after I'd after I'd he'd been put put down, I thought, well, I've got to raise some money for these guys. So what am I going to do? So I climbed Kilimanjaro, uh, and I was on top of that for my sixtieth birthday. So uh, I took his lead up with me, and I it's sitting at, well still hopefully at the top of Kilimanjaro. So that was that was why the um, the Bertie, Bertie was his name. He wasn't afraid of the dogs, but he had a hell of a character. Uh, <laughs> Never got me amazing. away. Very loyal animals, so very loyal. <laughs> Aye, we've got yeah. a lot of people now, he's great. Yeah, I mean, That's that, a nice story. Yeah, absolutely. And it sums up, uh, in many respects, your career and your life, the fact that uh, you like to put... Uh, back as much as you take out of life, and I'm just uh, curious, where where is your life and career motivation emanated from? Do you think, uh, Lawrence? A lot of it from the Royal Navy. A lot of it from the first 
probably two and a half years when I joined the Navy at 15 to 17 and a half. They call that boys service. But that drove into me all the things that have lasted me through my life. Um, and my parents obviously had a, had a, had a part to play in, in that. Their, their values, their work ethic, work ethic really. My dad, my dad have a, had a great work ethic, as most, most people of that age, that vintage, did have in those days. Um, and I saw that, um, and he'd started a business himself as well. So I suppose that got into it. Um, I always ended up joining companies that I enjoyed working for and I was proud to work for. Some of that, I guess, was by accident, in fairness, but I would have left them had I not enjoyed it. Um, places like Kerry Foods were a fantastic company. It was led at that time by a guy called Dennis Brosnan, who was absolutely inspirational. Um, and we were acquiring businesses, and he had a model to acquire businesses that we all, the management, worked through and stuff. He was just, he was a fantastic guy. And I've been lucky throughout my career as I've bumped into some great people and they've helped me along the way. So my inspiration has come from them as well, um, because they had the values and the ethics and stuff that are, are in me to treat people fairly, look after people, and that'll get you customers, that'll win you customers. Be honest. When we had a, when we had a Zur, we always used to make something go wrong on the first day. And I remember at Hamilton Racecourse, and something went wrong, but we fixed it within a day. Myself and my colleague, who were the owners of the business, went to meet the client and said, hands up, we got it wrong. Really, really sorry. This is why we got it wrong. We'll put it back together again. Don't worry. And and that was absolutely fine for her. That's all she needed. That's all she wanted was the knowledge that mistake had happened. You guys are going to sort it out. Thank you very much. Um, and that was an advantage for us because if you're in the bigger organisations, then you got to get permission from up here somewhere, three layers up, to do anything to give, to give something away. We'll we'll give you free. We'll give them free wine at the next one, whatever it might be. That kind of thing. That decision's instant. So that that's helped. Uh, that okay. came. From, that actually came. Sorry, I'm getting carried away here. But that actually came from Glen Eagles. Um, when I worked at Bell's, Bell's owned Glen Eagles. Um, at that, right. and. Each of the, the people that worked on a particular floor, whether it be the cleaner or, or whoever it might be, had the ability to spend £50. So if you went into your room and your bed wasn't made and you called the maid, then she had the ability to say, go, just go down to the bar, sir, and order yourself a drink or go into the cafe and order yourself a coffee. And by the time you come back, that will be sorted. They had the power to do that. And they hardly spent a penny, but they had the power to do that. So they had the power, in, and it's the same sort of thing. We had the power to, I'll fix it, don't worry. And I, I never forgot that. It, it's such a great lesson that trust people further down the line. Trust them. You know, they'll let you down, but they'll only let you down once. I must remember that the next time I go into Glen Eagles, just ruffle the bed sheets and say, can I get my 50 quid? There's a bar open. <laughs> <laughs> at, at six in the morning. <laughs> Lawrence, you'll be pleased to hear this is the, the last question. It's a two-part question that we ask all our guests, and that is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, and what piece of advice would you give to the next generation? I've given a bit of thought to this one, which may 
sound strange, but, but uh, for me, the best advice that I was ever given was the personnel manager that I spoke about at the beginning that looked after me. And one of the things he said to me, whatever it is, just ask. Whatever the problem is, just ask. If you've got a client or a customer that has a problem, just make sure you ask the questions. Make sure you understand. If you don't understand something, ask your boss how to do it. Don't go away thinking it might, he he thinks I know how to do that, so I'm going away and do it. Don't don't think that way. Don't think. Just ask people. Don't be afraid. Um, it won't it won't harm you. In fact, it'll let you do the job better probably if you understand it more. Um, so that, that I always felt that was good advice for me. And the advice for the next generation, I'm going to have to read this because it's important to me. Um, and it was, it came about a rather tragic way, to be honest. Um, I'm going to read you something that was, it was up in a, a I was in Kilmarnock actually in the hotel next to the rugby club, uh, to the football club. Um, and it was a, a, a wake for... Uh, park Hotel. The yeah. Park, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was a wake mm. for a girl who had been... Uh, tragically murdered um, and it was fairly recent so you may know the case it was Emma Folds and she was murdered and it was in in the uh, suite in the in, in the park hotel and Emma was the life and soul of the party she lived on the edge she uh, travelled a lot to all sorts of places in fact they were sitting uh, my, my wife's son she talked him into going, and he's a big, quiet laddie. He would never have done it on his own, but Emma Emma drove him to do it. Uh, and they were sitting in a bar somewhere in Kilmarnock drinking Jack Daniels, and she said, why don't we go to the factory? Why don't we see that where it's made? So that's what they did. But they also went to Machapichu and all sorts of other places. And Emma had said to him, um, or challenged him, that he would never do Everest Base Camp. And... Uh, Tragically, she was murdered before he was able to do that. So I'm going to do it with him next year. I can't do it now because of COVID. So the two of us are going to do it and just prove Emma wrong at that point. But anyway, this this is what was up. And it's about travel being an investment in your life. I urge you to travel as far and as much as possible. Work ridiculous shifts to save your money. Go without the latest iPhone. Throw yourself out of your comfort zone. Find out how other people live and realise that the world is a much bigger place than the town you live in. And when you come home, home may still be the same. And yes, you may go back to the same old job, but something in your mind will have changed. And trust me, that changes everything. And I think that sums up for, I look back on that and that sums up my life for me. Uh, The travel and the places I've gone. And, and yourself, Colin, you've been in Southeast Asia. It's a, it's a magnificent place. It's wonderful to learn yes. the different cultures. Yeah. And that, that's, yeah. that's a great quote. That's Lawrence. a nice piece of philosophy. Great yeah. piece of philosophy there. Yeah. Uh, very true and very honest. Yeah. Great. Lawrence Morrison, thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going to Podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this morning. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Yeah. And thanks for your service again, Lawrence. Uh, we never say that enough to servicemen, so thank you for that. <laughs>